Before Orton Park was a park, it was a cemetery. The land, purchased by the then village of Madison around 1846, promised over 250 burial lots for the community. It was also the site of scandal. According to newspaper records, cows wandered into the graveyard, occasionally leaving remains of their own. A group of UW-Madison medical students helped themselves to the corpse of a pauper to use for anatomy experiments. The land we know now as the site of summer festivals was a cemetery for just a few decades. It was phased out in the 1870s and 80s to become Madison's first park, named after Supreme Court Justice and former Madison Mayor Harlow Orton. But before the land could become Orton Park, the city needed to deal with the remains. Bodies buried underfoot were exhumed in the winter, transported across town on bobsleds, and reburied at Forest Hill Cemetery. At least one man insisted on transporting his relative's remains on bobsled himself. You're listening to the 6 p.m. local news. I'm your host, Nate Wuggiehow. On tonight's show, the impermanence of final resting places. Since the beginning of human history, we've always looked for ways to preserve the memory of our dead. Along with our grief come rituals, parting gifts, and burial practices. In fact, much of our knowledge of ancient civilizations come from their burial practices. Not everything is as preserved as Pompeii. Even today, there are a litany of burial practices. Of course, there are the ones well-known in Western culture, cremation, a casket six feet under the ground, even green burials for those who look to better the environment even in death. But across the world, there are many ways to preserve someone's memory. In India, remains are often placed into the Gango River. In South Korea, cremated ashes are turned into beads. Tibetan Buddhists place the deceased remains out in the elements for a sky burial. Everyone has their own way of preserving the dead. Socioeconomic circumstances in life often determine what happens to your remains after you die. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, the remains of the unknown, unclaimed, and poor were buried in potter's fields, or pauper's fields. Instead of, say, a Christian burial in a large cemetery, they would be buried in a cheap coffin with little to no identification or ceremony. In this story, we'll use the terms poor farm cemetery, potter's field, and pauper's field interchangeably. Potter's Field, like all old burial sites in Wisconsin, are controlled by the state. They fall under the jurisdiction of the Wisconsin Burial Sites Preservation Board, a nine-member panel of historians and archaeologists and representatives of the tribal nations of Wisconsin. The Burial Sites Preservation Board was created in 1985 under the state's American Indian Study Committee. Initially, the board was tasked with protecting indigenous burial sites from developers and mining companies. But the statute that created the board protects all human burial sites across the state, regardless of age, religious affiliation, ethnic origins, or cultural background. The Burial Sites Preservation Board is also in charge of any human remains dug up during construction. For example, if someone digs a hole in the ground to lay the foundation of a building and they find a human body, they call the Burial Board. If other bodies are discovered nearby, the board then weighs the interests of scientists, landowners, developers, cultural groups, and living kin to decide what to do with the remains. Sometimes this means labeling the area as a historic site and halting all development on the area. Other times, the remains are dug up to either be reburied or studied by archaeologists. The goal, I think, 
for all of us in historic preservation is to allow human burials to remain in in place to the extent possible. And sometimes that's just that's not that's not possible. That's Jennifer Haas, director of the Archaeological Research Lab Center at UW-Milwaukee and a board member on the state's burial site preservation board. She says that sometimes things happen. A construction project is underway, a project that will continue one way or another, and they happen upon a large burial site. Um, There is, therefore, a process working very closely with the Wisconsin Historical Society that's in state statute to follow certain steps to Um, adhere to the law and follow the steps necessary for disinterment analysis and then ultimately disposition, which is the ultimate either return and reburial of the human remains or the uh, retention of those for a certain amount of time for for scientific study. Once those remains have been carefully dug up by an archaeological team, they can be reburied in another location or held for scientific study or education. Who has the final say to determine what happens to those remains is outlined according to a ranked list. The people who get the first say are direct relatives. Already, this kind of gets complicated. You need to be both a blood relative and a direct descendant of the person buried. You'd be considered a direct relative of your great-grandfather, but not a direct relative of your great-aunt. Next on the priority list, any cultural, tribal, or religious groups that may hold some claim to the remains. Catholic cemeteries and indigenous burial grounds would fall under this category. Third on the list is scientific or educational research. Fourth is land use. And fifth is any other public interest, meaning anyone not directly related to the deceased. Until the burial sites board decides who has final control, the State Historical Society cares for the remains. If the final decision is that the remains be reburied, then whoever caused the disturbance in the first place is on the hook for the full cost of reburial. There is one final important part to state law regarding burial sites. Living relatives have the right to be informed when the remains of their relatives have been disturbed. Anyone who has an interest in the remains of a deceased relative can enter a registry with the state to be notified when a burial site is disturbed. If you aren't on that registry, though, well, then you won't be notified. That's what happened to Judy Houston, whose relatives were buried in the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. The Milwaukee County Hospital for the Acute Insane and Asylum for the Chronic Insane was built in 1887 to, in the words of a report from the Wisconsin Historical Society written decades ago, care for the poor and the insane of the county. We know now that asylums in the 18 and early 1900s locked patients up against their will. Medical providers had little understanding of how to treat or even diagnose mental health issues or even social issues that were interpreted as mental illnesses. Back then, insanity was loosely defined and included a swath of disorders, everything from homicidal tendencies to schizophrenia to social alienation. In addition to an asylum, the Milwaukee County Hospital served as an orphanage, a work farm, a poorhouse, and even a tuberculosis sanatorium in the early 1900s. But tonight, we're most interested in the poor farm and the asylum. 
A poor farm, otherwise known as a workhouse, was a place for the down and out of society to live, work, and receive social welfare. Poor farms often had harsh conditions, handing out hard manual labor in exchange for the bare necessities, often doling out physical punishments. Poor houses died out after the Great Depression of the 1930s, though some continued into the second half of the 1900s. One Texas poor farm remained open until the 1970s. Back to the Milwaukee County Hospital, the compound was open for decades, and over the years, there were five cemeteries for the compound, one for the asylum and four for the hospital and poor farm. If you go there today, you won't find much. To the north of the new freighter hospital sits the Milwaukee County Grounds Park, a mostly forested area littered with remains of the past, including the ruins of old gardens and a dilapidated staircase. Parts of the poor farm cemeteries have been dug up as part of an expansion of Freighter Hospital over the years, while other cemeteries remain in place, though remain unmarked to this day. This story will focus on the cemetery dug up by Freighter, or as Jennifer Haas says, Cemetery 2. For that one, uh, we know that the cemetery was established in about the 18, in 1882, and it was used probably to about 19, 1925. And that cemetery was in use to replace an earlier cemetery, which you know, we call Cemetery 1. The area containing Cemetery 2 has been disturbed multiple times throughout its history, beginning right when the cemetery closed its doors. In around 1929, the county decided to tear down the old hospital and build a new one, a hospital that could hold the growing population of Milwaukee County. To go with the new hospital, it was decided that a new nurse's residence was also in order. That nurse's residence was built right on top of Cemetery 2. As Haas says, within just four years of its closure, Cemetery 2 was forgotten. We, we know that in uh, 1928, uh, prior to the construction of the original nurse's residence, that the markers for the burials were uh, removed, fill uh, was placed over the cemetery, uh, the fence surrounding the cemetery was, you know, removed. There is some documentation of some attempt to contact uh, descendants of people that were buried there to move them. I think there were very few that were moved. And the nurse's residence in 1928 was built over the cemetery, and the cemetery kind of was, quote-unquote, lost. But the nurse's residence didn't last long, and within two decades, the building was imploded. Still, how many remains were removed, most likely to be reburied in nearby graves, is unknown. Cemetery 2 was dug up again in 1991, when Freighter expanded their campus. After discovering human remains, Milwaukee's Great Lakes Archaeology was called up to do a dig of the area. At that time, they dug up the remains of 1,649 people, who were then sent to Marquette University in 1993. Marquette didn't do too much with the remains, other than writing on them with Sharpies. The remains were transferred to UW-Milwaukee, where eventually they were given final control of the remains. Haas says that simply undoing some of the damage done at Marquette was a large task in and of itself. God, I mean, one of the one of the many challenges that we had was when the individuals came to UWM in 2008. Um, they required a lot of care just to stabilize them. They had not perhaps been cared for in the most appropriate manner prior to coming to uh, UWM. So the first couple of years were really targeted towards 
um, stabilizing and um, making sure that the you know individuals were appropriately um, cared for and stored in you know, archivally stable materials, and it would be and just you know kind of you know protected over the over the long term. Freighter again tried to expand in 2013, and again they came across human remains from the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery. This time, UW-Milwaukee was charged with the archaeological dig and discovered 831 remains. But as Haas discovered, accurately identifying who was who turned out to be a challenge. We know for Cemetery 2 that there were probably, at, any, at one time, over 7,000 burials within that cemetery. We also know that there is a ledger for a burial a burial ledger for this um, cemetery. It is handwritten ledger style document that records about just over five thousand burials. So already we can see some of the challenges we have with identification of individuals that are thought to have been buried within the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery when you have a cemetery that that held 7,000 people and then burial registry that lists 5,000. Judy Houston now lives in the Madison area, though lived most of her life in Milwaukee County. Back in 1998, while doing some genealogical research, she discovered that her great-aunt, Jenny Sharpless, was buried at the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery. Sharpless was born in 1912 and only lived less than two years before dying of heart failure. In 1998, Houston learned of her great-aunt's existence and wanted to see about moving her grave out of the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. But when she went to the county to ask where Jenny Sharpless was buried, she was told that she was essentially lost. And they brought out this book and they said, oh, my gosh, she's in this book. Well, she's buried over here. And that actually is cemetery number three. But that's where they told me she was. And they said, we can't find her because there are no maps that show where the burial site was. Seeing that her relative was given a burial, proper or not, she dropped the issue for two decades. In 2018, she found out that Sharpless was no longer buried and had been moved in 2013 to UW-Milwaukee. When Houston heard the news that Freighter was expanding and that thousands of graves had been taken out of the ground, she went to the State Historical Society to again see if she could rebury her great-aunt's remains. As it turns out, Sharpless was not buried in Cemetery 3, but actually Cemetery 2. But when she talked with people from the university in 2019, she was told that they had not yet identified Jenny Sharpless. So she waited and gave them some time to work. In spring of this year, she checked back in to see if they had identified Sharpless yet. She was told that not only had she not yet been identified, but that nobody had been identified in months. And that they're utilized for scientific research with the goal of identification. They then told me that I should sign a form. I should try to uh, sign up for the registry of informed persons, which I did. And basically that indicates how you're related to this person. And then that registry application goes to the burial board, which it did first part of June, along with all my genealogical lineage information. 
and they approved me for that relationship, knowing it was my great aunt. Houston found out that she had more than just her great aunt buried in the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. Three other relatives were buried there as well, all of which are assumed to have been buried in Cemetery 2 and then removed at one point or another. Houston's great-grandfather, Charles Sharpless, was a boilermaker in Milwaukee and was the father of Jenny Sharpless. My great-grandfather struggled as his wife, Ida, suffered with mental health issues. She was, for the majority of her life, institutionalized at the asylum. In 1913, he broke his leg at work and no workman's comp was available. He fell into further debt and despair. Facing financial hardship, Charles and his wife, Judy's great-grandmother, gave up their children to the Milwaukee County Home for Dependent Children on the grounds of the Milwaukee County Poorhouse shortly before the birth of Jenny Sharpless. Charles died on July 4, 1916, after he was hit by a train. He was 45. Then there are Houston's first cousins three times removed, the brothers David and Charles Baumgartel, the sons of a Civil War soldier. Charles Baumgartel served as a Milwaukee County Board Supervisor representing the village of Cudahy. Formerly working as an iceman and teamster, Houston says Charles quickly adjusted to the life of a politician. In the Milwaukee Sentinel in 1897, it talks about how 40 people came over and surprised him and they spent the night in games and dancing. And then in 1898, when he was being reelected, He and his opponent tied, and they had to actually pick uh, straws to see who would win for that. And Charles had won. He was declared the winner. In around 1900, Charles disappeared, only to reappear around 1916, when he died of pneumonia at the age of 45. His wife divorced him shortly after he disappeared, and the two never had any children. Charles' brother David, meanwhile, lived a much quieter life. He was a lineman working for the railroad. This was a very dangerous occupation 120 years ago, as one in three died while working at this job. And because of this danger, this actually led to the establishment of the IBEW in 1891. David never married, and in 1908, his name was entered into the Four Farm Burial Book. While Judy says that she is able to advocate for the remains of Charles Sharpless, what happens to Charles Baumgartel is unfortunately out of her hands. The way that the law is set up right now, anybody that uh, wants to be on the, the kinship interest priority has to be a descendant. So anyone that has never had children has no descendants, and they are therefore not able to be protected. Their remains may not be protected by kin, which is somewhat problematic. Since the spring, Judy has been working to get the word out about the 2,480 people removed from the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery. She's doing this by getting other people who have relatives buried at the cemetery to register as informed persons. That's because UW-Milwaukee has not been given the final rights to the remains disturbed in 2013. Under the law, they are only temporarily caring for the remains. Houston says that if the burial board deems that enough direct relatives have stated that they have interest in the remains, then those remains will go back to the families to be reburied and not back to UW-Milwaukee. So I have been very valiant in explaining the need to return the remains to family 
to have these people identified. And the people who are now approved for the registry, we have a total of 11. Nine of those, including one of myself here, are related to those four people that I mentioned earlier. And two are unrelated to my family, but they each have, one has a great-grandfather in there, one has a great-grandmother. So the number one goal was to have these folks approved. And it won't just be me on this registry as having kinship interests. But why is Judy Houston pushing so hard for the remains of people she never knew? People go to graveyards to visit their relatives, to show respect for the person that did live, whether it was a day or 23 months, as my Aunt Jenny, or whether it was many years. They deserve to rest in peace. That's the reason we say rest in peace. They are not specimens or artifacts, or any of that. When I look at the records as a genealogist, and I'll go to the Historical Society, and I look at these documents, and I'm like, wow, they have kept these so well. They archive them beautifully so that we can respect the fact that these gentlemen, let's say, had served in the the Civil War, such as my great-great-uncles. I'm able to look at those papers that have their names. But those are those names would not be on those papers if they had not lived. When somebody dies, the only thing that is left of them is their personhood that is still remaining in those remains. At the start of this month, on December 1st, the Wisconsin Burial Sites Preservation Board met for the first time since June. The board is supposed to meet four times a year, every three months, but the board missed its meeting last quarter. Judy tried to attend their last meeting. She was registered to give public comment asking for the reinterment of her great-aunt. After arriving at the State Historical Society at 10, she soon learned that the meeting was actually starting at 10.30. So she sat outside the room where it was supposed to begin for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, but the board didn't arrive. As it turns out, not everyone on the board could make it, and because they didn't meet their quorum, the board skipped that month. This meant that Judy had to wait another three months to speak on her relative's behalf. Fast forward to late November, the board announced that they'd moved their next meeting from the Wisconsin Historical Society in Madison to a small conference room in Stevens Point, two hours north. Still, Judy and her husband Mark took the trip to attend the meeting in person. After hearing public comment from Judy Houston and her husband, along with other people, both with familial interest in the cemetery and from the general public, the board discussed the cemetery. First came the issue of Unknown Man number 105. Unknown Man 105 was, like his designation implies, an unknown man who was buried at and removed from the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. All that was known of him, both at the time of his death and today, was that he died after being hit by a train in 1916. If that's ringing any bells, well, that's because it should. Judy Houston learned of Unknown Man 105, remembering being told that her great-grandfather died after being hit by a train in 1916 and was able to find a photograph of the unknown man taken by the county coroner. 
The photo was then shown to her mother, who said that, yes, that man was in fact Judy's great-grandfather, Charles Sharpless. Judy took this information to the board, where he was officially renamed under their records as Charles Sharpless, and he was no longer Unknown Man 105. Then came the list of people to be added to the registry of informed persons. Ten people applied to be added to the registry, and all were added. After less than two hours of open session, the board then went into closed session, where members of the public were not allowed to attend. They talked and debated for over two hours in closed session before the meeting was adjourned, likely not to meet again until March. Until that time, the remains disturbed in 2013 remain in the care of UW-Milwaukee. So then, what is UWM doing with the remains? To figure that out, first we need to learn more about Jennifer Haas and how the university cares for the remains. First, it's important to note that the archaeology department at UW-Milwaukee does not work alone. When they are brought in to study human remains, they work in tandem with the university's anthropology department, which in 2013 was headed by Dr. Patricia Richards. She and Jennifer Haas, who was deemed the community liaison for the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Project, needed to go through the steps to identify the remains. We have have three interrelated you know, components that we do. One is the cultural resource management program. So this is the one um, where we assist federal and state agencies and developers, you know, construction companies, engineering firms, with you know, complying with the myriad of federal and state laws that protect you know, cultural resources. Those are archeological sites, burial sites, buildings, traditional cultural properties. So that's a pretty big component of what our, our program does. So within that cultural resource management program, that's the question like if someone calls and says, well, we found a burial, I always go, well, you know, you need to notify the Wisconsin Historical Society, that's number one, and the sheriff, because you need to know, like, is this at a crime scene? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big question. And then, but we we provide guidance for the entity. Uh, and this, you know, if it happens on a fairly regular basis, and then we will assist the agency or the individual or the company kind of through the through the process of, of, of what needs to happen in coordination with the Wisconsin Historical Society. And then the second kind of component of our of the Archaeological Research Laboratory Center is the collections management. And this, so we have, we care for archaeological um, collections from about 600 sites within Wisconsin. So it's, you know, that's kind of a big, a big piece of what we do. So it's the long-term care, you know, museum type care of the, you know, collections. So very similar to a museum, but we don't necessarily have that, you know, exhibit piece of it or strictly public education piece of it, but kind of on the same scale as a, as a small, you know, museum. And so within our collections, we, we take care of the human skeletal remains that are part of the Milwaukee County Foreground Cemetery. And then kind of the third component, of course, is the outreach and student um, education and training. 
Haas says that the brunt of the work, done mostly by students as the university didn't receive any funding to go along with the remains, is menial day-to-day work, documenting what they can see from the remains, decoding the handwritten ledger, things like that. The day-to-day work is the digitization and database management of the ledger, but then also um, the database, like getting information to the database about the biological profiles. And then the deputy, all the other document research, um, coordinating all of that and managing that data. That is it's full-time work times probably three people, but with student student-led work. The other big piece that we do, that what that long-term care looks like, is, deve- is um, doing the work to uh, to develop the biological profiles. So we have completed biological profiles of most of the 1991-92 individuals, but not all of them. So the continue to do the biological profile, um, we go down into our our cultural item housing area. That's a, a secure, uh, environmentally, you know, controlled um, room, and we remove the individual that we want to take a look at and they come up, they are transported up into our bioarchaeology lab space and they're carefully, their human elements are carefully um, examined. Nothing destructive, it's it's visual assessments so we can identify um, age at death, uh, pathologies, sex, and then that can help us identify who that, that's the only way that you can identify who a person is ultimately is you need, you need to have that biological profile. And then once our visual assessment is done, they're carefully um, you know, put back into their storage housing and then carefully transported back down into the cultural item housing um, where they are resting until their final disposition is determined, I suppose. Remember, Haas says that the ultimate goal is to identify remains. Sounds easy, right? But all the remains are now at least 100 years old, and all they have to go off of is the aging, handwritten ledger. What we are finding is that sometimes it looks like we have a match, but then what is written in the burial ledger does not match what the biological profile is telling us. So, for example, the ledger may say female aged 30 at time of death, and what we are seeing with the biological profile is an elder male. This is not a situation where we have marked graves and we can we can identify, you know, this was this grave and this matches up one-on-one to the burial ledger. That's not how it works. Uh, you know, first of all, we have uh, we don't have everybody from the cemetery. So, the cemetery once held seven thousand people. We are currently caring for about sixteen hundred from the nineteen ninety one cohort, and on a temporary basis, about eight eight hundred. So we don't have everybody. We don't know how many burials were disturbed in the late 1920s with the initial nurses' residence. We also know that there are still burials out there. So far, around 200 people have been identified in one way or another. But of these 200 people, only six people have been definitively identified. 
Most of the other 200 identified people are only putatively identified, meaning that there's room for doubt. While researchers are fairly certain the remains belong to a specific person, they can't prove it. That becomes an issue for living relatives because the burial board only approves reburial requests for remains that have been definitively identified. The majority of those 200 remains identified can't actually be returned to relatives because the burial board doesn't want to risk giving away the wrong remains. That doesn't satisfy Judy Houston or others who have relatives once buried and now waiting in a lab at UW-Milwaukee. Houston says that what she wants is DNA identification. It appears as though it is very probable. Right now they are looking at the ability to match up to fifth generation. So that's pretty much this whole group. If you go further behind in years, if you go Further back, let's say 1830s, 1840s, it's more difficult. But these folks were buried from 1882 to 1925. So there is a good chance we'll be able to figure out some of these people. And for 31 years, to have them out of the ground and only have six identified is pretty sad. It is possible to use DNA to definitively identify the remains, says Dr. Rachel Fleskies, an anthropological geneticist at UConn, but it's difficult. To use DNA, you need to have a living descendant submit their DNA for testing so it can be matched to the deceased. Dr. Fleskies says that this is still considered cutting-edge scientific technology and would require lots of resources, primarily money. Jennifer Haas says the university simply doesn't have the resources to DNA test. But she says she feels the frustration that relatives are feeling. When you are working with cultural items from the past, it can be very emotional work. When you are working with human, human remains, it's even more so. So I think it's important to recognize the humanity of this and that it's very emotional work emotional work not only for me but I, I I know it's emotional work for you know descendants and descendant communities and I acknowledge that I'm present for it at the end of the day reinter you know we want to leave people where they're buried people are buried and they they should be left there if at all possible that's where I always start with with any kind of not not specifically to Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery, but just in general. That's the best solution for everybody. Sometimes it's just not possible. And so what's the next best thing? And to me, it is reinterment, but that's not always easy to do.
Let's take a break from Milwaukee for a moment and instead look closer to home. Wisconsin is home to a handful of poor farms, which at the time were mostly run by and cared for by counties. By extension, there's also plenty of poor farm cemeteries. There's even one right here in Dane County, near the park and ride in Verona, that was once home for people who died within the Dane County home for the poor or mentally ill. It's even still there, sort of, now moved up the road under the name Badger Prairie Healthcare Center, and is now more of a nursing home than a one-flew-over-the-cuckoo's-nest-style asylum. That building closed down around 1972. Jesse Charles is with the Verona Historical Society. He says that the site originally opened as a poor farm in 1854 and over the years expanded to hold an asylum and a slew of other buildings. And it became a place where people would come maybe for short term or maybe they'd spend their whole lives there. One resident that's recorded and I've spoken to someone who knew her who worked there in the 1940s and 50s. She lived there from when she was 10 years old to when she passed, I think, in her 80s. So some people live there. And it became a kind of a big fixture of Verona because a lot of people were employed there. And it was not a security fence locked door facility for the most part. So people would come into town from the poor farm and they would mix it up with locals. They'd come to the bar. They'd come to... Uh, they'd mill around. Eventually, residents of the Dane County home were buried in one of two cemeteries, creatively named Cemetery A or Cemetery B. Well, for the first 25 years, I counted a little over 100 people dying for the first 25 years. No record of where they went. No comments. So we don't know where those folks were they taken away. Uh, Verona Cemetery started in the late 1840s. Maybe they were buried there. There was a potter's field there that's known. Uh, Two of them. But then 1879, so it's 25 years later, the county starts Cemetery A. There's a there's a, a plot and they start burying people there. And everybody's kind of mixed into one spot. I think there's between 40, 60 people buried there. That, for some reason, was abandoned. And in the 1879, 1880s, a fellow named Jesse S. Myers, who's one of our Verona Civil War veterans and POWs, very detail-oriented person. He kept a diary of all this time in the Civil War, including being captured. He took over superintendent. He started two cemeteries, A and B which is the one cemetery you know about today over by Gus's Diner on the east side of town. It's actually two put together and they were separated. Asylum in the north quarter, poorhouse in the bottom three quarters. The location of Cemetery A is lost. And while some of those buried in Cemetery A were moved to Cemetery B, Charles says that most weren't. Because we don't know the location of Cemetery A, the rest of the story will focus on Cemetery B. There is a map of Cemetery B, created by an architect in 1945, that lists the locations and names of every grave. But the cemetery soon became too much for the county, and sometime in the 1950s, the headstones disappeared. For quite a long time, it was a big local mystery. Where did everyone's headstone go? Well, in the 1990s, there's a house on the east side of Verona, east southeast side of Verona, that a family moved in. They were the fourth owners. They have this patio on the back made of these rectangular pavers. They're all, 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 all smooth. And a whole bunch of, of their flower beds and stuff are, are with these kind of similar pavers. They flipped a couple over and they saw numbers on them. And they're the fourth owners of this house. They asked around and they found enough people, their neighbors, who knew that the person who lived in the house was the former head herdsman of the poor farm. And someone knew that he had taken some of these stones and used them in his in his yard. The Dane County Home Cemetery didn't close down until around 1950, and there are people alive who not only remember the cemetery being there, but even remember some of the people buried there. Jesse Charles has led an effort to restore the Dane County Home Cemetery using the stones that were found in the 1990s starting in 2018. 
people would walk by from like Gus's diner next door and be like, what are you guys doing? Because <laughs> we're out there with a shovel in the middle of a, a, a grassy yard. And you're saying, oh, this is a cemetery. It's a what? And there has been a marble plaque at the end since 93, but it's kind of, there's some trees around it and it's shady. You might not notice it driving by. And uh, that's one of my favorite parts of, of the project is when people come over and they ask, and I've lived in Verona my whole life. I didn't even know. And it's like, well, it's right here. Well, now it's, we've got rows of headstones. So mm-hmm. now people come and say like, is this a pet cemetery? And I go, you're half right. <laughs> so. Because the cemetery is a registered historic cemetery, Charles has to get permission for the project from the Burial Sites Preservation Board. For his project, he says that they've helped to accurately preserve the historic aesthetic of the cemetery. When it got processed, it came back as a problem with the size of our pavers. But they didn't, they weren't worried about our project. And I got positive. The folks I talked to there saw our project positively. The pavers we had to go back and forth a lot on, and we ended up with six-inch pavers. And then from that point on, they approved it. I appreciated that they had this level of scrutiny on what we were doing because they were right. Every year, Charles has to go back to the burial board to get permission to continue their project. And he says that so far, he has yet to run into any issues. He says that the project has been fruitful, allowing families to connect with the people who came before them. There's one individual here, Christian Hilderstadt, who's number 74. And we got contacted maybe 2019 from someone who had, was doing genealogy for his wife. And he found out that Christian Hilderstadt, who died here, I think around 1900, was her great, great grandparent or great grandparent. Well, he contacted me, he said, I'd love to surprise her by taking her out here and telling us about it. Well, we had her, his stone. He was one of the stones we had. And I just remember like, who, 74, I look, yes, it's one of the ones on the pile. So fall, maybe 2019, he came out, she came out, and two other generations came out. Mm. And we had the shovels. We had the permission to do this, obviously. They, when we put the headstone in, we dig a hole eight inches deep by this guy, Christian Hillerstad. He came in around 1900, I think on Easter Sunday. He was sick. He passed within a couple months. He had a son in the area that was logged, but his son couldn't, wouldn't take care of him, whatnot. He ended up dying here, getting, getting buried. And now here we are, 119 years later, there's three generations of descendants. They're the ones who did the digging, put the gravel in, packed it, put the headstone, and uh, they all took a picture afterwards. It was a really special moment. Mm-hmm. And we've had a couple other ones like that too, uh, where people realize it. And we're gonna keep getting that forever. I just know it, that people are gonna come back and realize it related. So far, the Verona Area Historical Society has recovered 81 headstones and hope to eventually commission a plaque listing the names, birth and death dates, country of origin, and grave number of everyone known to be buried there. With all the fighting back and forth over the remains of the people buried, one thing, pardon the pun, remains. Who were the people buried at the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery? We've looked at Judy Houston's great-aunt Jenny, her great-grandfather Charles, and her distant cousins David and Charles, but what of everyone else? Jeannie Zangerly now lives in Muskego, and while doing a genealogy project with nieces, discovered that her great-grandmother was too buried in the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. Margareta Starchevich was born in Croatia, and sometime in the early 1900s, she moved to America. She had four children, only two of which lived to adulthood. 
a daughter named Filipina, and Jeannie's grandfather, Joseph. Margareta lived in the words of her great-granddaughter, Jeannie, a tragic life. Margareta, in 1920, witnessed the murder of her daughter by her son-in-law. He shot her to death in a drunken rage. He wanted to take the youngest child, Paul, to the movies, but he was drunk. So uh, Filipina, also known as Lena here, um, said, no, you can't take him, you're drunk. So he left and came back with a gun and shot her to death. Though she tried to care for her late daughter's children, it just wasn't possible for the poverty-stricken family. That event, coupled with her own pernicious anemia, led to her death in the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Hospital in November of 1920. She was buried without a coffin, with only a shawl. After learning of the death of her great-grandmother, Zangerly then went to UW-Milwaukee on a mission to rebury her. She spoke with Dr. Patricia Richards, the head of anthropology at UW-Milwaukee at the time. She was told that, yes, they most likely have Margareta. Somewhere. But there was a problem. They didn't know exactly where she was. Zangerly tried to help out with all the information she had, her age at death, her height and weight, the fact that she had pernicious anemia, but that information only went so far. They still had to sort through over 2,000 remains, and how long that could take was not, and is still not, known. Zangerly is now on the registry for the cemetery, and says that she hopes, when her great-grandmother is identified, to rebury her next to her father. Johann Bailey was born in Germany in 1847, and is the great-great-grandfather of Chris Allsweed, who shared her relative's story. Johann was a soldier in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. It was during the war where he met his wife Susanna Engler. They soon married and ultimately had eight children together. The family moved to America around 1875, settling in Menominee, Michigan, where Johann worked as a carpenter and an architect. But he soon developed an addiction to alcohol, which caused Susanna to leave him in 1912, when she took their surviving children to live in Milwaukee. Johann soon followed, but stayed out of their lives. Johann Bailey's name appears in the burial book for the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery, indicating that he died in 1918 from pneumonia. While again, his exact whereabouts are unknown, Chris Allsweed believes her great-great-grandfather was removed from the cemetery and now sits in UW-Milwaukee. Chris hopes that someone will be able to definitively identify him through DNA so that she can give him a final resting place. In December, Chris was added to the registry of interested persons for the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery. But what about all the other people buried in Cemetery 2, the people who don't have someone still alive asking about them? Little Louisa Sacker's offer, as her obituary calls her, was born on August 26, 1892. Her family lived in Wauwatosa, not far from the Milwaukee County Poorhouse. While her mother was away to ask for food, or coffee, it differs depending on who was telling the story, Louisa was playing with her brother. While playing with her father's pipe, pretending to smoke it, she lit a match and then dropped it. She caught fire and died at the age of seven. It is not known if she was buried in Cemetery 2 or in one of the poor farm's other cemeteries. Regardless, her final resting place is unknown. 
1909, things were looking up for John Morin. At 19 years old, he had just gotten out of the state reformatory in Green Bay and was walking near the railroad tracks in Milwaukee. What exactly he was doing near the train tracks, catching a ride, planning a robbery, again, it depends on who you ask. John was hit and killed by a passing train. While his family, who lived out of town, initially hoped to give him a proper burial, he was instead buried at the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. Like Little Louisa, it's not known exactly where he was buried, and like Little Louisa, it is not known whether his remains are still in Wauwatosa or at UW-Milwaukee. There is even a celebrity buried at the Milwaukee County Port Farm Cemetery, in a sense. Gertrude West was born in 1875 and worked for the Ziegman and Polly Circus Company as a sideshow performer, weighing 658 pounds. West died after performing in the Milwaukee area in 1918 after receiving an infection from a mosquito, easily treatable now but deadly before the discovery of penicillin. Judy Houston says that even in death, Gertrude West was made to perform. At the morgue, a noisy crowd outside clamored for admittance to see the woman. So even in death, she was supposed to provide a view to the crowd. Gertrude's husband, Harry West, tried to get her a proper burial, but he simply didn't have the money, and she was buried in the Poor Farm Cemetery. Gertrude West was buried in Cemetery 2, and is one of the six people definitively identified by UW-Milwaukee. So, we know the situation. We know what UW-Milwaukee is doing. We even know about some of the people formerly buried there. What comes next? At the December 1st meeting of the Burial Sites Preservation Board, 10 people were listed as interested persons for the cemetery, having direct relatives buried there. This is important because the burial board is expected to make a final decision on the future of the 2,480 remains sometime next month. What? is going to happen is UWM will put in their final disposition proposal plan, which just basically says we would like to retain them. There's no cost involved with that at all. They've already have the shelves and the boxes that they keep these folks in, their remains. So that doesn't cost them anything. It's just very easy for the Historical Society to agree that that's the right thing to do. They've already done that with the first set, so they could easily just say, we don't want to do with what the first priority people are suggesting. So they could do that. But because this is a catalog cemetery and because it holds a registry, we are able to appeal if they do that kind of decision where they just say, no, this is what we want to do. So we have that opportunity to appeal that decision. Right? So hopefully, yes, they're going to agree with our goal. And our goal is eventually reburial. Uh, but we'd also like identification done because that's how you know people really shouldn't be buried anonymously when they were put in the ground with a name. Judy says that she's been talking with experts across the country to work to provide DNA identification for all the remains. 
Meanwhile, UW-Milwaukee is continuing to work to identify those remains. Even if those remains are identified, their future remains uncertain unless their relatives are easily found. A few months back, when this story first appeared on my radar, a small website existed for something called the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery Project. That website has now disappeared. Fearing the worst, I asked Jennifer Haas what happened to this tiny website, one of the only online resources that wasn't a 500-page document outlining what the cemetery was. Haas says that, as the community liaison for the cemetery, she's planning on going into the new year ready to provide more community outreach for the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery. To do this, the Milwaukee Poor Farm Cemetery Project website will be seeing a much-needed overhaul, providing more information on the grounds and the people themselves who once called the Milwaukee County Poor Farm home. Until then, the 2,480 people removed from Cemetery 2 at the Milwaukee County Poor Farm Cemetery will remain in the halls of UW-Milwaukee in a small, climate-controlled containment unit sitting preserved until their final resting places are determined. This has been a special investigative report right here on WORT Madison. I'm reporter and producer Nate Wuggiehout. Music was provided by Blue Spot Sessions. The 6 p.m. local news will return with a live edition tomorrow. See you then.
Thank you.